You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Isabel McCall on the microbiome, but it was specifically about parasites. So with uh, Laura Isabel McCall, what's interesting to me that stood out is that uh, she's researching parasites and how they act inside of uh, mice. Um, And she's working on diseases that probably are more prevalent in third world countries. She calls them neglected diseases, uh, I guess, because, you know, there's not a lot of money there. And the people that would pay for the drugs that may help them or the treatments that may help them don't have very much money. So that's unfortunately probably why those diseases are neglected. So that's one realization. Another one is that um, parasites, um, they create niches within the creature that they inhabit. And their goal is to uh, use the cellular machinery inside of their host to benefit themselves and create, uh, you know, food and things like that for themselves and to achieve their, their purposes, their homeostasis and their proliferation. So what's interesting about uh, Laura Isabel's approach is that she's doing what she's calling, um, I guess, molecular cartography. So a map of, you know, if she if she mapped the entire intestine, intestinal tract of a mouse, she's looking that, you know, at an inch or centimeter zero to three, what kind of chemicals do you see there? And centimeter three to six and six to nine and all the way through the, the tract. What's there? What kind of chemicals are there? Um, I don't know about concentration levels, but she's trying to map what is seen along the whole intestinal tract of a mouse, for instance, which is very interesting. I haven't heard of this approach where people are doing that, and I wonder what that would tell you. What do the gradients in the chemicals look like? Uh, What are the concentrations? Which chemicals start and stop and at what locations? And this is, you know, uh, it's a huge project if you were to map everywhere in one creature. I don't even know how you do it. And, you know, can you go to finer detail than a few centimeters at a time. What if you did a micron at a time? Well, then, you know, you may never get there. You'd have to make so many measurements. So I thought that was very interesting. Uh, She also mentioned that um, the parasites, again, uh, forcing the cells of the host to make certain chemicals that will benefit them. Um, And she's researching a class of chemicals or a class of, uh, you know, enzymes or substances or chemicals, whatever you want to call them, that if you provide that, to the host that the negative effects of the parasites seem to go away. So two reasons that we theorize why that would happen. Well, 
you're either maybe keeping the parasites fat and happy and they don't see the need to produce as much of the things that they were having produced for them, so they let off in, in their attack and they let off in their aggressiveness, or uh, perhaps the cells that were deprived, the host cells, the mouse cells, they were deprived because the parasite was greedily hoarding their resources and using their cellular machinery to make what it, it wants, and the cells are being starved. So perhaps these uh, substances that they're adding to the mouse are keeping the mouse in good shape when it otherwise wouldn't be, because otherwise it would be starved of the various things that they're they're giving it. So I thought that was very interesting. I don't often talk to people that are studying parasites, so it's a very, very interesting call. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have Laura Isabel McCall. Uh, she's an assistant professor at University of Oklahoma. Uh, she has her own lab, the McCall Laboratory, and we're going to be talking about uh, microbiome-related issues. So, Laura Isabel, thank you for coming. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Tell me about your work in the lab. What do you focus on? So, our main focus is the idea that understanding location can help you understand function. And so if you know where a microbe is and what chemicals they're making in that location, that can help you understand the function of that microbe within the context of the microbiome and also ways that you can intervene. And so the way we do this is using a tool that we call chemical cartography, which is basically a way to map chemicals or small molecules in 3D space to understand where they are. Oh, really? Huh. How, uh, that's really interesting. How fast do chemicals move throughout a fluid medium? Um, it depends, I would say, on the chemical. Most of what we do is in um, mammalian systems. So it's not really in a liquid so much as inside different organs, between parts of your gut, or between regions of your heart, your intestine, either inside the lumen, inside where the food is, or in the actual tissue surrounding your intestine. And so in that case, they'll be moving much less fast than if it was just inside a glass of water. Well, what, what are the relative speeds, you know, in those areas versus uh, just a liquid? Ooh, speed, that's a hard question to say. I don't think I could put a number in it, but definitely some molecules stay put inside the cells in one part of the body, and you won't find them in other body parts. So they don't even out across the entire body system. Not all of them. How do you know, uh, how do you know where they are and where they're going? I mean, do you look at gradients or like what? What technology did you use to figure this out? Yeah, so the main tool we use is um, an instrument called a combination of liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry. So mass spectrometry, it's kind of like a balance, a scale, but on the molecule side of things. So you get the weight of a molecule or you get the weight of pieces of a molecule, and that helps you figure out what that molecule specifically is, what its structure is. And then liquid chromatography is a way that we use upfront before the mass spec to try to simplify this really complex data to help the mass spec deal with the huge amount of information and samples that we're throwing in. And so that's the tool we do. What we do is we apply it to, um, systematically apply it to different regions of an organ. So if we're interested in the large intestine, we'll collect samples all the way through ideally going maybe centimeter by centimeter all the way through the intestine and analyze each little piece using our liquid chromatography mass spectrometry approach. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is do you use these devices in a flow state, but it sounds like you're doing discrete sampling, you know, centimeter by centimeter. Can, can you do this in a flow state? Um, could you do it in a flow state? Probably if you modified it. That'd be um, cool. It would be cool. A lot of the samples we're doing, though, are solid, right? So you need a way to 
make them liquid to be able to infuse them into the liquid chromatography part of the instrument. I gotcha. Huh. But I guess you could conceive of something where you hook up something that homogenizes your tissue and that's in line with the mass spec and just chews up the tissue and pushes it into the instrument regularly. Yeah, interesting. Now, that in live samples, though, I don't think you could. Right, well, right, yeah, of course. I guess from, a, from the blood source to the constituent tissue, if you were in the interstitial space, maybe you could set up uh, some kind of flow arrangement, see at least the migration from you know, uh, the blood supply through the interstitial fluid to a given tissue. Yes, that would be theoretically feasible. Okay. And yeah. what scale are you are you able to look at? You know, like like I've learned that uh, bacteria will put out, let's say, plasmids. You know, our own cells will put out exosomes that are like nano-sized particles. Um, like, how fine of a resolution and what kind of concentrations can you look at, and how, how closely can you look? So our scale, we focus more on the larger, big picture side of things. So more, we're more interested in the scale of the whole organ, how things change across a whole organ. So that means we don't have microscopic spatial resolution. We'll have smallest piece we can do is probably a few millimeters. So we can go down to that scale, but not to the micrometer scale. So not to a bacteria side. Um, unfortunately. But if we had micron level scaling, there's no way we could do a whole intestinal system at the same time. With oh, I know. That's that's the funny trade-off. Is exactly. The smaller so the scale you can look at, the, the all of a sudden, like, a, you know, the, the piece of tissue is like a, you know, a football field wide or, a, you know, a thousand miles wide. Exactly. So we're more of a forest view than, you know, the leaf on the tree kind of view, I would say. Um, in terms of concentration, we can go down to at least picomolars, if not lower, depending on the specific molecules that we're looking at. Hmm. So what kind of interesting uh, phenomenon have you seen in, in this kind of view? I haven't heard of anyone really doing this. Not that so, I know everything that's going on. <laughs> yeah, well, so we do a lot of work in the context of neglected diseases, using this approach to understand the interaction between the neglected pathogens, the microbiome, and the host. So most people haven't heard of the diseases we work on in general either. Um, We've been doing this a lot in parasitic infections because the parasites localize the very specific parts of the gastrointestinal tract, and then they interact with the microbiome at the location in the body. And so by using our spatial approach, we can really start understanding what's happening right at the sites where the parasite levels are highest, what's happening at the sites where the parasite levels are still low, but there's still tissue damage and everything in between. And so that's been uh, able to help us really understand these diseases in a way that's never been done before. So for example, what we found is that um, you would think that where there's more parasites, there's going to be more disturbance metabolically, but that's actually not what we've seen. So what we've seen is actually that there are many sites in the gastrointestinal tract where you can have a lot of parasites, but metabolically the tissue looks almost normal. And then you have other sites where the parasites are almost all gone but the metabolism in that part of the gastrointestinal tract is still very much met. Well, you talked about um, the environment that, you know, parasites or microbes are in. So what constitutes the environment? Is it just the physical tissues that are in the area that it's in? Or what about the other microbes and the other interacting parties? Does that also make the environment, the metabolites oh, they spit out, does that make the Yes, absolutely. So the metabolites that all of the bacteria in the gut are making, that all the fungi, all of the other eukaryotes are making, that is definitely also part of the environment. Um, Food-derived molecules are also part of that environment. And then if we're thinking about a human system, it's even more complex because there's all of the other external chemicals that we're exposed to every day. 
you know, if you're thinking about antibiotics, you're thinking about even personal care products, pesticides off of the food that, you know, he didn't really wash before eating. All of those are also part of the environment in the gut. Do you see that um, the bacteria or parasites are doing like active niche construction where they're remodeling the area they're in to make like a, a micro environment that they like? Are they adhering to different cells? Are they, you know, putting up like, I don't know, barrier materials? Like, has that been observed? Um, so certainly bacteria and microorganisms will remodel their environment to help fit their needs. Parasites are really good at shifting the host towards making the specific nutrients that they particularly need, and also at setting up the environment so that they're hidden away from and not as easily cleared away. And so I think some of the metabolic changes that we see in infected tissues are definitely part of that remodeling by the parasite to create it. So what kind of interesting phenomena have you seen? I guess one you mentioned is, again, it's not just that there's millions of parasites in an area that uh, that area looks to be in trouble. So a number may not be a, a correlation, but again, what, what interesting correlations or things you've seen that are new to you? Um, that, that was new to me. But one other thing I think that we found is that taking the pathways that are changed by the parasite, if we then use small molecule drugs to alter back those pathways, we can actually prevent our animals from dying. So they'll have a lot of parasites, but they'll just survive the infection with no visible problem. So by tweaking that metabolism, we can completely prevent the mice from dying. And so that's a new way of thinking about infection treatment. We're not just trying to just get rid of all of the microorganisms, but instead dealing with the damage that they're causing and helping to compensate for that. Yeah, that makes more sense than just trying to kill them. So what what does that mean that you'll try to uh, metabolically starve, let's say, a parasite, or um, you'll try to help, uh, you know, a bacteria in its local area that produces uh, toxin for that parasite? Or you know, like, what are some of the methods you've come up with? Yeah, so one thing that we're trying to do is help the host cope with the energy demands of the parasite, because having the parasite living inside your cells it's there taking out a lot of the energy, a lot of the nutrients. So if you provide external sources to help compensate for that, that can help the cell still be okay, even though it has parasite inside. How would you, how would you prevent the parasite from grabbing those additional resources up for themselves and getting even more powerful, more pervasive? You know, that's a good question. I, I, we thought that it would make the parasite worse, and it didn't. So it must be able to compensate from some metabolic pathways that the host need, but that the parasite need or doesn't same way. Well, I guess, um, you know, like in learning about cancer, um, sometimes an environment is unfriendly enough that, let's say, it would cause the cancer to spread. And sometimes the environment is so friendly that it doesn't really feel the need to, and it's happy, and it's just, you know, fat and happy and sitting there. So maybe that's what's happening. Maybe in some cases you're creating an environment for a parasite where it's like fat and happy, so it relaxes and it's not mm -hmm. as aggressive and obtaining nutrients. Perhaps that's what's happening. Yeah, maybe. That's something we need to figure out. We haven't quite figured out yet how it's working. All we can say is that it worked at this point. So essentially, you provided an abundance of missing nutrients that were robbed from the cells that the parasite robbed them of. Yeah, and that seemed to help the cell cope. Well, hmm. yeah, that's true. So if a parasite invades a cell, it wants to produce certain substances for itself. So that may mean it may compromise other substances the cell needs, but they may not be the same thing. The things the parasite needs may not be the things the cell would normally need. So I yeah. guess that would be more complex You, if you mess with one or the other. So if you restore a cell and give it what it needs, it may not be the same thing that the parasite needs. 
So the parasite wouldn't care and there would be less effect on the cell. Yeah, that's what we think is happening because if it was a nutrient that both the cell and the parasite used, we definitely expect it to have more parasites than parasites to grow like gangbusters and that's not what's happening. Have you tested both, uh, both ways? Have we tested? So we've only looked at specific um, metabolic modulators. And so we've either had ones where there was no change in parasite numbers, but the mice didn't die. And we've also had some that decreased parasite level. So probably blocking the production of something that the parasite needed. We haven't seen anything that actively increased parasite levels. The opposite of a good drug that we haven't seen, luckily. Yeah, that's good. That's interesting. Are there classes of compounds that you think would be good candidates to target first? Um, we have a few candidate ones. I don't really want to tell too much about that at that at this point. But, uh, can you classify them in terms of like function? Uh, is there anything you can say about the general class of compounds you think would be good candidates? Um, they're generally focused on lipid metabolism modulation. Okay, so... Um, Hmm. Where do you think that, uh, well, you mentioned you work on neglected diseases. So are there any that, you know, are classified as neglected, but yet people would know about them? They're not that arcane? Um, so one that people should know about is our main focus parasite. It's called Trypanosoma cruzi. So even though it's not very well known, there's over 7 million people worldwide that are infected and at least 300,000 people in the U.S. that are infected with this parasite. You can actually catch it in the U.S. as well. So even though it's neglected and it's called tropical, it's right here in America. The, the, the parasites and the diseases you study, are they fatal, or do they just progress to a certain point and then stop? This one is, it progresses towards a fatal stage. Yes, most, not everyone who gets it will die, but about 30 to 40% of those who are infected will die of the disease if they're not treated. And if you wait too long to treat it as well, people will die anyway. Do you think you'll see a difference in behavior or efficacy in diseases where the, you know, it's typically fatal versus ones where the parasite will grow and stay, but really not kill the host, but just stay there for a long time? So we've tried our um, compounds in both disease models. And it seems that in the ones where the mice don't die, it still improves heart function. So it looks like it has a benefit even in non-lethal cases. What about when you intervene early on versus later? Do these parasites go through different stages and different morphologies? And you know, do they go to a dormant stage, for instance? And is intervention different at that stage versus others, active ones? Yeah, so one problem is because having the parasite long-term leads to accumulation of tissue damage that gets worse and worse as time goes by. And so if you wait too long to treat, then um, you might be able to kill the parasite, but not necessarily repair all the tissue damage that's accumulated. So that's one big reason why waiting too long to treat doesn't work. And then on top of that, yes, the parasite can also become dormant, and that makes it resistant to a lot of the antiparasitic drugs that are out there. So um, why does the tissue get more damaged over time? Is it just a depletion of necessary compounds in the tissue? Or is there a continual remodeling by the parasite that progresses? So there's nutrient depletion. There is remodeling by the parasite. There's also the fact that the parasite just causes the cells to rupture. And then not every organ in our body is able to regenerate. For example, that's why once you have a heart attack, the heart doesn't go back to how it was when you were 16 years old. It stays dead. And so um, that's the other part of it. And then your immune system, by coming in, trying to kill the parasite along the way, also kills 
your host tissues. And then that's also another way that damages. Do you think the parasite is monitoring the host health, especially in the microenvironment, and adapting itself to changes in the host health? It's an intriguing thought. Um, I don't. I really don't know. But it's a very curious idea. But how would you find evidence of that if you looked? Well, we could look at how the parasite metabolism changes as time goes by. Is it itself adapting as those cycles of damage and repair go on? Um, so a time analysis would perhaps give us that answer. Are you seeing interaction of the parasite with the host cells and the constituent uh, microbes? Like, is there communication uh, yeah, so you know, we, through all parties? Yeah, so we see a very large impact of the parasites on the microbiome. So the fecal microbiome, we found, is changed throughout the course of the infection. Um, but we've also seen that the tissue microbiome in the different parts of the gastrointestinal tract is also changed by infection. And it depends on location. So for example, there's a very large impact in the cecum in mice but less in other parts of the colon. Oh, in the cecal area where it empties into the large intestine, you mean? Yeah, that's where we see in chronic disease the biggest impact on the microbiome. But then if we look at the microbiome closer to the anus, then there's less of an impact of the parasite on the microbiome there. Even if the parasite resides locally right in the area, let's say, the, yeah, that's I mean, a factor of how far away it is? Yeah, so there's parasites all across those locations. Um, there is more parasites in the cecum a little bit, um, but there's less host disruption in the cecum in terms of metabolism. Okay, so maybe physically how close the parasites are, if, if that is their niche, and then I guess downstream of them, you would either see more or less disturbance because of their activities. So the, Yeah, but the parasites are not actually in direct contact with the microbiome, so they live in the muscle underneath um, the that coat that help the intestines contract. And so they're actually not touching the microbiome. So all of these interactions are indirect. Oh, there's, I thought that some parasites would, uh, you know, so they're always indirect or? Ah, no, no, no. no, other parasites definitely do live in the lumen of the gut. Uh, Trypanosoma cruzi doesn't live in the lumen. Do you see a big difference depending on where the, um, the parasites are, if they're in direct contact with the microbiome or not? So we haven't done that. That's something I would love to do is compare this and apply this technique to other pathogens to see how that applies. But we haven't done that yet. Okay. Well, what's next up on your, uh, your agenda? What's going to come next in your investigation? I think we definitely want to keep moving forward on the compounds we found because those are very exciting in terms of mechanism of action and also in terms of making a difference in um, patients' lives. The other thing that um, I'm really excited about is now we've proven that we can use this spatial technique to understand one particular case of perturbation of the tissue environment. But we can apply it to so many other diseases. There's so many diseases that have a very specific spatial location. So a lot of pathogens have preference for some parts of the body, um, your example of intestinal worms, for example. But there's also a lot of non-communicable diseases that also have spatial location. One example I can think of is Crohn's disease, where you have specific spots that have lesions and then adjacent tissue that looks healthy. So our technique can help you understand what's going on in those damaged regions versus those seemingly healthy adjacent. So I'm very excited about expanding this to other models and other systems. Are you literally able to make a, a map of how a, um, 
of where a parasite is, what shape it forms, and as it grows and spreads, you know, where it moves? So we can do that just by quantifying the parasite load. What I'm interested in more is how the metabolic changes move along the gastrointestinal tract, for example, how those chemical perturbations are happening, spreading. Um, and yes, we built, so we built 3D models out of our data so that you can visualize in 3D exactly what molecule is where, where the parasite are, where the damage is happening in relationship with each other. Well, do you see that, um, you know, metabolically or somehow that the parasite's looking to expand and does it send out uh, anything, reconnaissance molecules or parasites themselves that do reconnaissance, establish, uh, you know, new niches, the bulk of the parasites go there? Yeah, we haven't done that because we haven't done, I think, enough time points to be able to look at this. But I think it would definitely be very exciting. One limitation, unfortunately, is that when we collect the samples, we have its terminal sampling, right? You can't, the animal can't live without those organs. So we unfortunately can't repeatedly sample the same animal over and over again. So that makes looking at temporal changes a bit more difficult. But with enough replicates and time points, I think we should be able to address that. Well, do you think you can license or uh, you know, speak with uh, people that are researching cancer? and use some of your visualization techniques, you know, the metabolites to model the same thing that what's happening in cancers? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely has huge applications for that field, for sure. Yeah, because it just seems like a lot of the, um, uh, I don't know, called the personality of parasites or how they work uh, is similar in cancer. You know, they establish niches, and they, it just seems very similar. That's why it comes to mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, the idea of thinking spatially, the idea of, that location matters is hugely applicable ac across all fields, I think. So because your samples, you know, are terminal, as you say, what about if you went backwards, if you were able to reconstruct backwards somehow, would that work? Would that do anything? Would that tell you anything? If you can't go forwards, maybe you can go backwards. I don't think I understand what you mean by backwards. What did you have in mind? Well, I guess when you look at what's happening in a parasite system, I would guess you probably want to predict forward in time what will happen next. How is this going to advance? How is this going to go from here? I guess that's just my assumption. But do you ever say, all right, how did this come to be? What did it look like before it got to this point? You know, again, looking backwards. And ah, yes. I mean, I think with enough samples and replicates, we can get both directions, I think. Start to predict, you know, if we've collected samples at monthly for a year, then we can start figuring out, okay, if it looks like this at three months, then it can, it's going to look like this at four and five and six. And then, yes, we should be able to also sit, go backwards and say, well, these organs were um, metabolically changed early after infection, but then it resolved there. And then, so where that organ came from, yes, we can do both. Yeah, have you ever introduced parasites to uh, a mouse and started looking immediately to see when the first signs appear? Are you looking, you know, kind of when the parasite's well-developed and well-established? Like, at what points in the course of the parasitism or disease are you looking so the earliest we've looked is at 12 days after the infection, which is pretty early, but not immediately after it's been. So it gives the parasite a chance to get into those cells, multiply a little bit, extend a bit, and um, probably go through a second cycle infecting a bit more host cells. That's the earliest we've looked at. We haven't looked right, right early because we wanted to make sure we had an established infection 
but yeah, that's something that would also definitely be interesting, especially as we try to expand our time coverage. Oh, I, I know I'm asking you 8 million questions on all these directions you can go, but you, you got to keep no, your focus. Exciting. I understand. You know? No, it's exciting. <laughs> I think that's, that's what's exciting about what we do is that it can go in so many directions and there's so many open questions still to address. That's what makes it fun. Yeah. Oh, excellent. So uh, how far distance wise will you look, are you, you're going in what, like one centimeter increments over a, uh, you know, over like a, I don't know, a, a 30 centimeter span or like how, what, what size range or how far have you found that you need to look for the effects that you're looking for? So what we've done is we've done this across the entire mouse gastrointestinal tract. So going all the way from the esophagus down to the anus. Um, we didn't do it fully centimeter by centimeter in there. That was my original intention. And then I counted how many samples that would have been. And then I had to reconsider that idea. So we ended up doing slightly larger pieces in the small intestine. So we did pieces that were between two and a half and 15 centimeters in length. But each segment, we are consecutively attached to each other. So we didn't have any gaps. So when we reconstruct the data, we can map molecules across the whole thing. It's just that our pieces are slightly bigger. But I guess from here, you can interpolate and the, the areas that are interesting to you. You're seeing a lot of activity. You can go down in smaller and smaller scales. And I guess if you keep interpolating and picking the middle, you should maybe pretty quickly approach uh, a super interesting area where a lot of activity is happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the areas that's come out of that is really the cecum and the early large intestine appear to be particularly interesting. And that's very exciting too, because those are high sites for the microbiome as well. What about if um, different mice have like a different morphology of their cecum? I mean, do, do they? And how much does that affect what's going on? Like literally, this one's the folds of the cecum are, uh, you know, at this angle, this one has you know, folds at a different angle, or this one has like a thousand folds per centimeter, and this one's like only 400 folds per centimeter. That's a curious question. I don't know if it's very, how variable that is. I would say the one big difference is that different mouse strains have very different microbiotas. So that might have a large impact beyond just the morphology of this. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, why, why did they pick that area? Is it just because literally the shape uh, allows, you know, a better flow of certain nutrients over that, over that area? I, you know, who knows? Maybe the folds uh, are trapping certain nutrients that would normally pass by too quickly and concentrating them so that the... Uh, the parasites can work with them or the cells can work with them. That's why. Well, if, if I'm going to speculate, my, my guess is that that's a site where the microbiota is making a lot of short-chain fatty acids, um, some of which can be anti-inflammatory. So that's a nice way, place for the parasite to hide away because now you're turning off the immune system, the immune response. And so then um, you can hide away, you can proliferate, and you won't get killed by uh, the hosting response. That's my, that's my theory. We don't have much evidence for this at this point, but that's what I would speculate. Yeah, theory is fine. Yeah. Speculation is good sometimes, you know. I know that a lot of uh, scientists don't want to speculate. you got to do it at least privately where no one sees. This so is a bit more public. Forward. This is a bit more public. Well, I'll forgive you. I'll, I'll, you just say that I made you do it. I appreciate it. Well, very good. Um, what's, what, do, what do you see as uh, the near-term future success of what you're doing? Like, what what would be a really happy result for you to achieve in the next couple of years? Uh, I would say the happiest result from this is if our compounds were to go to clinical trial and actually work. 
that would be an amazing outcome. Having going all the way from our spatial metabolomics, our chemical cartography, all the way to something that makes a difference to patient. Now, this is usually a slow process. So this is definitely, I guess, a long-term goal. Short term, I think a huge success is just we're already finding new things about these diseases that we didn't understand. And so being able to apply this to other biological questions, other disease questions, and generating insights in those fields, I think that would be a, already a big success. The pipe dream is to get stuff into the clinic. Right. Okay. How, how far away do you think that is, you know, if things go moderately well? Um, some of the compounds we're using are already being used for other purposes in patients. So that has an easier road towards implementation in the clinic. So maybe I would say in the five to 10 year range. Okay. Well, one more question I forgot to ask. Since you're studying parasites, it seems like it's rare that people study them at all. A lot of people study bacteria. Are there big differences in the behavior of parasites versus bacteria or are they they pretty similar in how they operate? And compare that to like the mouse's somatic cells itself. And you see amongst all these different types of life forms that uh, they're very different or are they similar? So that's where why dealing with parasites is so challenging clinically. It's because they're actually much more similar to us than they are to the bacteria in the gut. So they are very different in terms of behavior. Their biology is very different. So bacteria don't have a nucleus. Our cells have a nucleus that the DNA is enclosed in its own membrane, isolated from the rest of the cell. Parasites also have their DNA being enclosed just like us. The structure of their protein machinery is also much more similar to us. So a lot of the antibiotics that work in bacteria won't work on those parasites either. Okay. Well, very good. Well, um, Laura Isabel, I I appreciate you coming. Uh, It's really cool that you're studying this stuff because it seems like very few people are. So what's the best way for people to find out more about the, you know, your lab and to get in touch? Um, Well, we have a website. It's mccall-lab.org ocreate.com and um, we're also on Twitter so um, the, it's at Lab McCall so if you want to follow us to see what we're doing, um, what exciting new findings we have, that's a nice way to keep up to date with what we're doing. That's great well I appreciate you coming on the podcast My pleasure, thank you for having me You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.